0: Welcome, you're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where cutting-edge, nationally recognized care is delivered through a compassionate approach. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia.
1: Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have everyone tuning in to Back Talk Doc. Again, this is almost the third year of the podcast. And those of you that have been following me and the episodes for some time know that I like to bounce around uh, between some hardcore pain and spine topics. Then every now and then we jump into some of the what I call the heart side of medicine. If you haven't had a chance, I've had discussions on uh, healthcare and spirituality with my partner John Welshofer. That was one of my early episodes and one of the more popular ones. Take a listen to that. Um, I've done an episode before on how pain can affect your relationship with your spouse, and there's plenty of tools there that people can benefit from. In 2022, I was able to do some episodes discussing. How, some techniques on how to release the emotional side of pain and trauma when we talked to Dr. David Bercelli about his trauma release exercise program. And today, starting out the new year, I'm, I'm delighted and privileged to be speaking with uh, Dr. Jody Stern. Dr. Stern is one of my partners and colleagues at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, and he holds down the fort in our Greensboro location. Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Sanji. Today, we're going to dive into a topic that probably through no desire of your own, you have really become an authority on. And that is the idea of compassion in medicine, empathy, communication, and that whole relationship side of the doctor-patient relationship. And for those who don't know Jody's story, Jody is the author of um, his book that he published. I have it sitting right here. And this is um, a book that Jody put out in 2021, Jody? Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's where he details and documents the journey that he went on both personally and professionally uh, while caring for his sister, uh, Victoria, who was battling um, leukemia. And uh, he details her journey and his journey as both a physician and a brother and really gives us some tremendous insight, unique insight, I would say, uh, into that into that journey. Um, so, Jody, before we jump into that, I've heard some of your podcast interviews about the book, and I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that this is a real-life story that happened. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry for the loss that you have gone through, you and your family. And I just feel like that needs to be acknowledged up front that it is very, very courageous to put forth that journey uh, on paper, To share with the world so first of all you know we appreciate everything that you've done and uh, thank you for being here
2: well i really appreciate that and thank you very much the thing that i did with this book and was hoping to accomplish was first of all lay out my personal journey but also my sister's experience because she wrote a journal of her illness she was a very vital vibrant actress mother uh, lived in los angeles And she was determined to write a journal about her illness with the intention of uh, creating a one-woman show about it. And in fact, she wasn't able to do that because she died after her bone marrow transplant. But in the process, I saw as if for the first time what it was like to be a patient and what it's like to be a patient's family member. It really had a tremendous impact on me personally in terms of my relationship with her and family, but also how... I take care of patients and the whole notion of passion in medicine. And empathy. I think that I've been an empathetic person, but I realized that in many ways I had never really been as empathetic as I needed to be or as compassionate and hadn't really understood what it was like to be a patient, what it's like to go through this kind of illness. First of all, the the depth of fear and terror that people feel, the helplessness, the desire the trust that they have in their doctors. It was a profound moment for me and I realized that a lot of our education in medicine is very task oriented and in the process our training we kind of get the grief and the empathy part of it squeezed out of us and we're taught to suppress that. And I recognized early on that in that process of suppressing grief and trying to distance ourselves from our emotions that's actually a corrosive moment and it ends up working against us. And I really think in a strange way, our not uh, experiencing our grief and allowing ourselves to feel the emotional impact of our jobs ends up kind of contributing to burnout because we try to suppress the emotional side of our jobs and move through our relationships in a transactional manner and ignore the
1: impacts it has on us and also it has on other people. Yeah, I didn't know if, if you two had spoke just about the journal she was writing, and if you guys had planned to to do anything with that. But um, no, she had she had planned to uh, have it published.
2: Okay. That was her goal. And I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I just didn't want it to sit and
1: go to waste. You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, the the book is, and we exchanged some emails. It's got a tremendous amount of depth and you can go in many different directions discussing what you wrote about. We can talk about it from the physician side and what that experience was like for you. And you could talk about it from the patient side, or you can talk about what are some of the common ground between the two. And I know like what someone gets out of your book is going to depend upon their life circumstance and where they come from. So maybe let's, let's start a little bit about. Uh, I'd love for you to share the patient side where you took off your neurosurgical white coat and you put on your loving, caring, concerning brother, um, hat. What are some things that you learned during this process that you might've been surprised or shocked to find out? First of all, one of the things that's become brutally honest to me is that we're all going to become
2: patients. So, you know, we are all on somewhat similar journeys. One of the things I really strove in the book was to was to kind of create that universal point of view. And it was interesting because when I was trying to get it published, they uh, the publishers would say or agents would say, well, it has to be toward a patient or it has to be for a doctor. And I said, it's for both. And what I was trying to do was to bridge the gap between physicians and patients and say, we're really not that different. We're really not that separate. Um, that's why in, in, in addition to my sister's journal, there's uh, there are a bunch of articles, a bunch of interviews with patients. I had interviews with patients and physicians and physicians who became patients. And It's an amazing transformation that you go through when you check your doctor identity at the door and the passage of time is totally different. If you're a patient waiting for information, waiting for test results, trying to understand things, it's as if time stops. And when you're a doctor, you compartmentalize and you say, well, you know, I'm going to meet with this person for 15 minutes now and then in six weeks, I'll meet with them again. I'll tell you what, being a patient and going through six weeks of waiting or uncertainty feels like an eternity, particularly, and things that I took for granted, you know, well, the pathology result isn't back yet, I'll call in a week or two. Well, you basically have a patient kind of clinging to their chair trying to survive waiting and not understanding and not knowing and waiting for those test results. And you tend to think, you tend to read silence. Silence creates more anxiety. You think, well, is this negative? Is it bad news? What's going on? And that just creates a, it's a very different experience to be, to be living it and not fully appreciating all the, maybe the subtleties that you kind of take for granted as a doctor. So when I, when I'm, when I'm working as a physician, I'm seeing a lot of patients and juggling a lot of people's needs. And if you take some time to step back and look and, and, Kind of peel the onion a little bit, find out what people are experiencing, what they're worried about, what it is that they're going through. It's it's an amazing journey, and a lot of times I felt that I wasn't really as aware as I should or could have been about just how deep an experience and troubling and scary uh, being sick is. And take it out of like you know brain tumors, what I uh, have dealt with a lot, and. But in something as uh, you know, relatively not fatal as spinal disease, it can be the anxiety of it, the uncertainty of what this does to your life, of how it affects your you know your career going forward, what what your life looks like. It's it it is really a powerful impact, and I just think a lot of times physicians don't think about that or recognize that or or and are often reluctant to explore that with people.
1: You know, I always kid, so in my practice is predominantly spine care and I do a fair number of spinal injections. Years ago when I was in practice in Cincinnati and I hurt my own back and, you know, I always kid that I would much rather just learn from the book than experience. Yeah. But in reality, what I learned from experience is not in a book. And in fact, there was a moment when I was sitting in the wheelchair waiting for my epidural steroid injection and I looked to my left and there was one of my patients And she Mm -hmm. said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Quality control." (laughs) You know, it was very humbling, and uh, you know, it it serves. It definitely will. um, That type of crisis keeps you grounded as a provider. And there's just things that you can't learn in medicine through, um, you know, just through reading and journal articles and such. So, uh, you've absolutely hit the hit the nail on the head. Are there things that you have been able to take away from that experience as a family member and adjust how you treat patients.
2: Uh well I've written a few articles that uh, appeared in the New York Times and kind of on that topic and I think that patients really want to know that you care. They really want to know that you're interested in them. So this kind of empathetic connection that a lot of times we kind of uh, avoid or skirt around is of such vital importance to people that taking a few seconds and it, and it really doesn't take very long, much time at all. It takes 17 seconds to create an empathetic bond with someone, looking in their eyes, talking with them, you know, listening. You know, we interrupt people a lot. We tell them what's going on and we give them a plan of care before they've even been able to tell us what's going on with them. So I think having some patience, having the ability to listen, uh, not being hurried, uh, being present and listening and appreciating their experience is Of vital importance. It makes you a better doctor, but it also takes your your care to a whole different level in terms of the
1: relationship that you establish with the patient and family members. So, one of the things that I'm really curious to talk to you about is your idea and belief that as providers, when we show more compassion, we suffer less burnout. And I think you've cited some research supporting that, and even from your personal experience. I'd like to ask you a question, kind of turning that around a little bit and get your thoughts. I believe there are some of us in the medical space who can take that too far, almost have too much empathy that it can be a little bit harmful. So for example, you know, I do integrative medicine and I have a big connection with the integrative health community. And there are people who call themselves empaths who have to practice meditation techniques and what they call energy clearing techniques just to protect their own energy. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's extremely important. Um, I think
2: you have to compartmentalize as a physician. And, you know, one of the things I advocate for in my book is um emotional agility, which is a flexibility. You can hold contradictory things in your head and heart at the same time. You have to, I mean, if you look at the enormous emotional range that we have to have as as physicians and particularly as neurosurgeons, you know, I have to be, I have to sort of wall off my emotional state to be able to, or at least make it um less upfront, you know, to be able to cut someone open and do surgery on them and take on that that job. I think I would argue that you have to be emotionally connected to that person even while they're asleep and under anesthesia to be able to serve them well, you know, because otherwise if you don't or you objectify people, I think that's when bad things happen. But I definitely think that you can't allow yourself to be overwhelmed by emotional experiences. So I think that the whole idea of Emotional uh, agility and being able to be flexible, being able to be and protect yourself is really important. So I think that if you just open the floodgates and become uh, an empathic sponge, I think you'll be destroyed. Uh, yeah. But if you also just close everything off and objectify people
1: and don't connect with them emotionally, you're you're going to be a lousy doctor. Absolutely, you know, two simple things that I try and do with everyone that I see. Well, maybe three. I have really found that my state of mind as a provider is critical to that encounter. So I try and center myself before I walk in the room. And sometimes that can be as simple as a couple of deep breaths um, because I feel like patients can pick up on it if I'm feeling depressed or if I'm feeling anxious or rushed. Mm -hmm. So the breathing technique um, is very helpful for me. And then two things that, you know, I took a little inventory one day and I realized I just wasn't doing enough of, and that was... Number one, good eye contact. And number two, smiling more. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's amazing. And during my fellowship, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of mirror neurons, Mm -hmm. um, but there's literature uh, that essentially explains how, you know, whenever you see someone and you say they've got bad energy or you walk in the room, you can already feel that that person is not doing well without talking to them. Just some literature to the effect that our physiology can basically mirror the emotional state of someone who's in front of us. And I think that plays out every day in the office. Well, it's funny
2: because I'm I'm talking, I have a friend um, who is actually quite helpful. Her name is uh, Helen Rice, and she is a professor of psychiatry at um, Harvard. And she was very helpful to me navigating this because this didn't come as a, a, a kind of clear package, a clear understanding. This was sort of a crisis. It actually came about because I was, when I... We started on this journey, I and I've written this in the book, but I was doing surgery on a young man's brain, and he didn't exactly have a complication, but he had post-operative weakness. We took out the tumor from uh, what's called the supplementary motor area of his brain, and initially he had some weakness in his leg that subsequently got better. But because I was so emotionally connected with my sister, I found what would be, normally be upsetting to be almost devastating to me, and I had to, mm-hmm. I had to go and see her. Helen has been able to help me navigate um, or give me some advice to navigate towards greater emotional agility. So you really, and it's a different way of thinking, but you really have to, I think a part of it is, as you said, is being present, is being connected in the moment. You know, a lot of times people do pick up on the fact that you're rushed or that you are distracted, or, you know, that you're, you've got a, a million things going on. When I look at the impact of care on patients the thing that they remember and I don't know if
1: you do you know book compassionomics is that a book you've seen it's a it's one I bookmarked based upon your recommendation so I haven't gone through it yet it's really good but the thing is the whole
2: idea is that what people remember is the compassion of the of this of the doctors and that they cared less than the technical precision or nuance or complexity. You kind of have to do both, right? You have to be you have to be competent and skilled and able as a surgeon or physician, but you also have to be connected and compassionate. So you have to you have to do more, but at the same time you can't just pile on. I think this gets in it's interesting because I do think your question is one I'm really struggling with, which is okay. So I went from more emotionally distant or less comfortable feeling grief, which I think is super important to feel. And if you go down that path where you're not connected to your grief and you just suppress it, you're headed for burnout. If you totally focus on grief and empathy and that's all that you do, then you're going to get wiped out by your job and what you have to do. And if you look at the current demands on on us as physicians, so now I'm putting not the patient hat on, but the doctor hat on, and I'm saying, you know, we have the electronic medical record, the, the fighting with insurance companies, the fighting with hospitals, what's called moral injury, you know, where you are you are being asked to do things that you either don't think should be done or the demands are so great on you just to kind of get through your day that if you don't have some ability to prioritize, process, keep some distance from those things, then you you run the risk of greater injury yourself. So I do think it's a very complicated path and it's it's not as simple as, you know, I say, "Oh, we'll just become emotionally agile. I think it takes a lot of work, yeah. but I I do think that one of the reasons that I'm glad that I have done this or set out on this journey is that you don't realize it but when you kind of clamp down on your emotional life, you actually distance yourself from the highs and lows of life. It's as if you're you're not really living as richly as you could. So, I think that the the one of the keys is that the the beauty of life is inseparable from its emo- from its fragility. You know, we are doing things with people at moments of crisis and doubt and terror, and where their bodies are are, not, are failing them, and that is scary. But you have to be there with that patient to be able to help them. And you know, if you have patients who die, um, that's hard, but also. There's a there is a certain kind of beauty in in being able to render care or being available to people in those moments,
1: and I think we have to have as physicians tools to create space so we have the awareness of that beauty. The days can get so run with busyness that you can just miss it. You can miss the moment. I had an encounter recently with a patient who literally I was only really, if I'm honest with myself, I was kind of half listening because I was typing in the EMR and then I something she said caught my attention and I turned right at her and I asked her an open-ended question and then just the floodgates of tears just came out. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I almost missed that moment for her, which is a real reason why she was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there are tools, I think for from a medical side, if we switch the hat, getting to a, a place that you advocate, which is a bit of heart centered care, more compassionate care, more connected care. I think as physicians, we resonate with tools that help us achieve that state because for many it's not inherently natural. Right. Uh, I mean, talking about emotions is just pretty foreign to a lot of people, but the tools that's one of the reasons I did the integrative medicine fellowship through Andrew Wiles program is I learned some self-care tools. So tools like breath work, meditation, uh, tapping technique, So when I have difficult patients or days, uh, I've been shown an emotional tapping technique that takes 90 seconds that literally makes me feel good now, whether it's placebo or not, I guess I don't really care. Um, the but they're, they're better tools than alcohol. Mm-hmm. They're better tools than um, becoming angry and having it sabotage personal relationships. One of my, uh, I guess life coach, I would call her, uses a phrase that "emotion is energy in motion." And if you don't let that motion happen and you hold it in, like you say, Jody, it can be destructive, right? So like showing tears in front of patients. And I know you've definitely done that. And I've, I've done that more as I've gotten out of my career and felt better about it versus holding that stuff in and just not feeling so good. One of the things that's been really great about this journey is meeting people like you, (laughs) because I think
2: you're, you're making a lot of sense and the thing is nothing that i'm saying is unique or shocking but it the the problem is we don't do it and it's interesting cuz the people who are who are interested in what i am saying are more open to it you know it's it's i think that in medical training we're not taught how to do these things we're taught very early on how to kind of push away from your emotional state to be so called objective and disconnect from your emotional state and we're taught that the technical and uh you know anatomic and physiologic that data that information is is what really matters and the other more subtle things like emotions don't and or compassion doesn't and I think that's flat out wrong uh, I think that if you are if you approach, patience and yourself with compassion you are going to be a better human being you're going to be a better physician you're going to have a lot happier patients you're going to have i would i would say you're going to have better outcomes
1: yeah there's no doubt in fact the template for documentation the soap note subjective objective assessment and plan in my opinion it's so hollow or inadequate mm-hmm. you know use the term objectifying patients i never really heard of that before but I realize it's so true, and it's something that we should certainly try and avoid. Dr. Wayne Jonas, you may have heard of him. I don't know. He's one of the leading authorities in integrative medicine, and he has written a, in a book, a book called How We Heal, mm. where he talks about, through surgery, in fact, that much of the healing process through surgery is almost through the ritual, and that the actual procedure is a bit of the cherry on top. And this is shown through the literature, that if the ritual involves a compassionate concerning listening surgeon that the outcomes are far better, just as you just mentioned. Right. And he has put out some templates on what he calls the hope note, hmm. where you spend a little bit of time basically taking history with regards to asking questions like, what are your mechanisms? Like, do you have friends you can talk to when you're under stress? Is there a place in your environment you can go to when you need peace? And you know these sort of questions that we aren't really taught to ask during medical school and i would push back a little bit on you when you say that nothing you're saying here is shocking let me just make it clear what you're saying may not be shocking but the person who's saying it makes it shocking the fact that you are a well respected well established practicing neurosurgeon who's talking about grief that's everything and that that'll raise people's eyebrows and garner the attention that you deserve with this because you know historically surgical field like you said I mean it I'm not sure it leaves a lot of space for that and you have actually given us a path where that doesn't have to be the case. Well it was funny you know because I I came to um the Charlotte office and
2: talked one evening with people and what was amazing in that experience was how this resonated with people in a very deep and meaningful way and I'm teaching this evening I'm actually teaching this um it's a called a medical humanities um hmm. program for the uh UNC uh, medical students who are rotating in Greensboro, and they don't have the opportunity to just sit around and talk about the emotional impacts of their work and their training and what they're going through and doing, and and they need it. You know, I'm doing, I'm going to show you this book. I don't know if you know this book. This is... um. Yes, I have it. So this is uh, a Rachel, Rachel... Rachel Naomi is uh, created this program called the the healer's arts and that is and I'm I'm um starting to work with students in that and one of the things I was I was blown away cuz you know I hadn't I had not heard of her when I wrote my book and it published but that she is um talks about grief and the importance of grief it was like ah someone really gets this not only does she get it but she's been doing this for 20 plus years wow and Created a program that goes across many medical student, schools, it's probably 100, talking about grief, talking about, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about, which is super important, is, is a sense of awe, you know, that we we lose track of the magic of what we do and the excitement of what we do and the privilege of what we do and how what a wonderful, what a wonderful opportunity we have to to really make a difference in people's lives. And it's funny, because I go to um, Honduras, and there's an organization I work with called One World Surgery, and we, uh, on the Physician Leadership Council for Spine in that organization, and what we do is we do basically free care for people in Honduras. And the thing that's amazing is I can't really speak Spanish that well. And the patients, you know, I see them for very brief times, but the, the, um, the impact that I am able to have or that we are able to have on our trips is just staggering. I saw this man he had had intractable horrible uh leg crippling leg pain and back pain from a simple, you know, thing that we would we would be able to fix here pretty readily for 9 years. Oh wow. Not able to walk, not able to stand, basically in misery. And you look and you say they have no no social support you know if you can't work in Honduras there's no social safety net there's nobody going to look out for you so i you take this person to surgery we fix his back and he walked out you know 2 or 3 hours afterwards with a smile on his face super happy and you just see this that we i think we tend to take for granted and maybe this is partly patients and doctors but the the, the power and the majesty and the awe of what we do and the privilege of what we do, and how what we do is such, is it's it's such a wonderful chance to make a difference in people's lives. And we tend to take it for granted. You know, we're, we get so busy with like, I got all these cases to do, I got all this work to do. We look at productivity, we look at expenses, and the and the financial parts that the magic can get squeezed out. So I think that's part of the flip side of the compassion part, which yeah. is just as important. One of the other things I know, I, I thought it was really interesting. I want to hear about this, but you, you you said that your brother is a palliative care doc.
1: Yeah. So he's a internal medicine hospitalist and he works at the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. His name's uh, Rajan Lakia. Um, and he founded their palliative care service line and program. And I, we don't talk a lot about it, but when we do, I feel like it's probably the most enriching part of what he does.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you know him personally, he's really a grounded person. And I think it might come from that, that he has to cultivate that to have those deep conversations. But I'm glad you brought it up because my familiarity with palliative care was somewhat similar to how you described that it came in kind of late in the ballgame in certain situations. Right. But when you describe how palliative care can really help support that social side, the emotional side, the family side, just quality of life side, my my first thought was, well, who doesn't need this? Like, what patient indication diagnosis can't benefit from this because I can't provide all of that in 15 minutes. Well, so one of the things I think I haven't mentioned, which I really want to mention is the whole
2: idea of teamwork. And I think Mm. that's really kind of the salvation for both uh, one of the features of burnout and also the realization that I can't do everything right. I can't take the history and physical and talk about the treatment and Do all the social support? That's just not physically possible for me to do. The only way that I'm going to provide quality care is as a member of a team where there are other people who who participate. And my, I saw this recently with my cousin who was uh, diagnosed with lymphoma, and he's now getting treatment. But he is being touched by many people in this treatment team. And yes, the oncologist is doing the. Initial evaluation and setting up the chemotherapy and doing all that. And he's got a lot on his plate, but then he has a supportive team. And I think that that's one of the integrating care teams and recognizing. So, because the whole idea of like, oh, I'm going to do the palliative care and I'm going to do the medical care and I'm going to do the surgery, it's like, no, you can't really do all that, you know, but we can provide it as a team that works together. And I think built into those team models, are One is consistency, because I one of the things that bothers me is I look at the care that is rendered to patients varies too much based on the individual giving the care. And if you have a team that's kind of integrated into the, the care process, I think that will hopefully standardize some of the treatments. But also in that additional layer of support where these other issues are attended to, you also get your support as a, as a doctor. You don't mm. feel like you're alone. I think a lot of it's thing we haven't also talked about is that a statistic I just recently saw, which just blew my mind, is that a third of people over 50 are completely alone. They have no one, you know, they have no one to help them. They have no one to get them through illness. They live alone. They are alone. And I look and I say this, this loneliness, you know, and so part of countering this is restructuring the way we we deliver care and how we support each other. And I think that comes with teamwork.
1: Uh, I think that's super important. Yeah, I would totally agree. Uh, we learned about the blue zones across the world uh, that have the highest population density of people living in their 90s and 100s. And they studied the, what do they eat? what How do they live their life? And it turns out, that one of the most important factors perhaps even more important than what they eat is their social connection their social right. network right so to hear that statistic you throw out tells me we got some work to do well the thing is it's not it's not as much what you eat but how you eat do
2: you yeah. have someone to share your meal with do you take the time to have a social interaction do you have joy in your life do you have you know companionship it matters a lot more than those things matter more than what your calories are or how you what you're putting in your mouth, and so I guess um, I feel that you know one of the things I did. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm all over the board, but um, I went and took um, training in um, palliative care because I I wanted to not I was advocating for it in my book, but I felt that I needed to know more about it to be able to advocate with with some expertise. And I took a course in uh, palliative care at, uh, through Harvard Medical School. Can you define that for people who are listening who aren't medical?
1: What's palliative care?
2: Well, so palliative care is basically supportive care, and the thing we're talking about is it used to be hospice care. You know, basically, I'm about to die, and then I get someone who helps me with my death or or end end run kind of end of treatment decisions. And one of the things I find frustrating in our algorithms is basically we say, okay, well, you are now we're going to no longer aggressively treat your cancer. So then we bring in a new team who's going to help you die. And what we're talking about is those palliation are basically support, comfort, giving information, providing a, a supportive path for people that has to come a lot earlier and it shouldn't be subdivided in your care team. Like, okay, I'm the treatment guy. Now that we're done with that and that's not working, now we're going to switch and we're going to talk about dying. It's like those those discussions and holding someone in your hand and kind of helping them along that path, that has to be had from from the very beginning. You know, when when you get sick, you have to talk about, what this might be like. And one of the frustrations I had with my younger sister was she didn't want to hear about dying. You know, So they kind of, they drew this wall where they weren't going to talk about it. And what that did was that tended to shift care more towards treatments and more towards, well, we can do this chemotherapy. And one of my frustrations was, well, she, she had a very early recurrence of her leukemia after her bone marrow transplant. And that took her survival, Likelihood to virtually nil. And because they couldn't really, she was too weak to be re transplanted. And the likelihood of that being successful was very low. And they couldn't really be aggressive with chemotherapy. But instead of, and it partly was her, she didn't want to hear that. But what they did was they just tried new chemotherapy or kind of lighter chemotherapy. And they're basically treading water. And I felt that it was a shame because that was really an opportunity that was missed because instead of, saying, you know, Victoria, this isn't working and we need to really think about what your end of life might look like, you know, which she didn't want to hear. And people, I understand why they avoided it. We ended up just kind of, and I was part of that problem, you know, because I, she said, I do not want to talk about dying. And so we ended up doing these, uh, these other things, uh, treatments that didn't work. And I feel like it's kind of like a magic show where you keep a ball in the air and keep everyone distracted. And then meanwhile, the life part is going on, And we're not paying attention to it. So the idea of of palliative care is you kind of you bring support to families, to patients. You, you know, just what you were saying about the hope note, you kind of look at, well, what are what are what are their desires? What do they want? And what I did when when I took this course was it was really all about how to communicate effectively with people, how to listen, how to talk, how to touch on difficult topics. Because our tendency of kind of avoiding those topics is we don't really want to. So we just sort of you know, push them away. And we end up never having those conversations.
1: Yeah. And Dr. Jonas's work with the hope note, he talks about a fundamental question. He said, we need to shift from only asking what's the matter to what matters.
0: Mm, That's right.
1: And uh, just a simple, subtle paradigm shift in our thought process can really open up some communication between the doctor and the patient. So Well, you know, I feel like I could probably talk with you for three or four hours on this, but I I really wanted to bring you on, number one, just just to hear what you had to say as a follow-up to the book. And, you know, I actually listened to your book. I was able to download the audiobook version through our local library. Uh It's a very different experience, I find, sometimes, the audio versions versus reading it. But then I did go through the book itself, and I'm glad I did, because you have a lot of family photos in there. I got to see uh, Victoria's picture, so it really resonated for me, and I would encourage people who are interested in, um, I'm sure this is available, Amazon, typical um, outlets, Yeah. and then also, if you want to learn more, uh, he's got his personal website, it is uh, josephsternmd.com, is that correct? Yeah, Yeah. and that's a really well-done website, too, if you want to learn more and even um, get in touch. I encourage people. We'll link to all of this in the show notes today. Well, thank you so much. And I, I would probably leave you with one last question. How has your life changed since you released the book?
2: I have found a community. Uh, you are part of my community. <laughs> and so I think there's been some validation. And I I also, um, I've become more passionate about the need for us to rethink some things and, and change how we do things. So it's, it's become a, it's become a driver for me, but i I'm very grateful. You know, I I have a wonderful agent. It's put me on a path that I I find um, fulfilling, but it's, it was really quite a lot of work to write. I rewrote the book about 10 times. And, and so it's been a, it took a lot of time, but I'm glad I have done it.
1: And so, so are many of us very thankful that uh, you had the courage to put this work out there. And I don't know how you did it in the midst of your busy practice. Uh, but uh, once again, thanks. Thanks for catching up today. Um, you know, I'm sorry we haven't connected sooner than this, but I look forward to future conversations.
2: Well, you're, you're wonderful. I admire what you're doing. And I completely support your instincts and what you're talking about in terms of care. I think they're spot on. So thank you, Sanjeev. All right. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Have a good night. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lachia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at CarolinaNeurosurgery.com.